and welcome to A Murderous Affair, a podcast about women in history known for mayhem and murder. My name is Gabrielle, and this is part two of Fulon Devi, Bandit Queen of India's story. For those of you who haven't heard part one yet, I highly encourage you to pause here and then go back and listen to the first episode because this next part won't make much sense until you do. Part one was our previous episode, which was just titled Fulon Devi, the Bandit Queen of India. So if you guys go back to wherever you're listening, you should be able to find that episode there and listen to that one first before coming to this one. Hopefully you did that, but for now, I'm just excited to get started. So let's just pick up right where we left off with the aftermath of the Bamai massacre. In the two years since her involvement, Fulon still hasn't been caught despite multiple police agencies looking for her and a huge reward sum being offered. Fulon has continued on with her gang, living in the ravines that many other bandit gangs lived in at the time. However, many of the people that she'd known and run with were pushing towards a surrender. Negotiating a surrender with the Indian government was common practice for dacoits who either wanted to retire or were running out of allies and money. Initially, according to her autobiography, Fulon did not want to surrender. She believed that if she surrendered to the Uttar Pradesh police, that they would kill her in captivity and she'd never even see a trial. She also believed that there was no point in surrender as she didn't want to give up the power that she'd wielded. As time went on, more bandits that she knew either died or surrendered and her gang numbers whittled down to just a few. So, she began to negotiate the terms of her surrender with the Indira Gandhi government. Her five conditions were, one, a promise that the death penalty would not be used against her or any of her gang members who surrendered, two, the term for other members of the gang wouldn't be longer than eight years, three, a plot of land to be given to her and her family, four, her entire family to be escorted safely by the police to witness her surrender, and five, she would lay her arms down only before the pictures of Mahatma Gandhi and the Hindu goddess Durga, not to the police. The conditions for her family were also a priority. Apparently, during the later years of her reign, they'd been held under duress and arrested in hopes to pressure Fulon into surrendering. This was also part of the reason that she chose to surrender as she was worried as to what else would happen to them. Now, I mentioned that this was a surrender ceremony and I'm not exaggerating. Fulon was a bit of a celebrity at this point and around 10,000 people gathered in addition to the 300 policemen to watch Fulon surrender to the chief minister of Madhya Pradesh. There was a stage with portraits of the goddess Durga and Gandhi as well as an announcer who informed the crowd of the entire proceedings. When Fulon laid her rifle down, literally, like more than a symbolic gesture, she literally took off her rifle and laid it down in front of the portraits. The crowd cheered like it was some sporting event. All in all, Fulon was charged with up to 48 crimes, 30 of which were banditry and kidnapping. She remained in jail for 11 years, where she says she was forced to fight for basic amenities for herself and others in the prison. When she was in prison, she also had to undergo surgery for ovarian cysts, where the doctors gave her a hysterectomy. It's implied that they did this without her knowledge or permission, as one doctor at the hospital joked, we don't want Fulon Devi breeding more Fulon Devis. In her autobiography, it's said that the doctors and many of the other staff and workers at the prison didn't speak the same dialect as Fulon, and she had a really hard time understanding what they were saying, in addition to being illiterate and unable to read or write. In 1994, Fulon was released on parole and subsequently had all the cases against her withdrawn. 
Basically, she spent her 11 years in prison, and then, in the end, the government decided not to even charge her with anything. Obviously, this made some pretty huge waves. In the end, no one was officially charged with the massacre in Bemai, and many of the gang members that she had surrendered with were released years before she was. In an interview after her release, she remembers that, quote, I rotted in jail. Everyone simply forgot that I was there. Indira Gandhi, who had agreed to my terms, was dead. The chief minister of Madhya Pradesh had been assigned to another state. I had no money and I couldn't get legal aid. And all of the members of my gangs were of far higher caste than mine. They had minister in the state assemblies. The interviewer remarked that, I didn't know that you led a gang of upper caste men. To which Fulan replied, there's a lot you don't know about me. When asked what she missed most about being a bandit, she got pretty f reflective. Seriously, this article has so much great information about her. I highly recommend you guys checking it out if you haven't yet. It is India's Bandit Queen by Mary Ann Weaver. It was an article written in 1996 and published on The Atlantic Online. Anyway, what she missed most about being a bandit was that, quote, once I became a dacoit and started making lists of all the people who had tortured and who had abused me and I was able to pay them back in kind, that pleased me tremendously. When they were brought before me and fell at my knee at my feet to pay obedience to me, the fear of the gun is a powerful thing and I was the master and those who had once abused me now worshipped me. I was actually happy most of the time I was a dacoit. Being a dacoit was a hard life. We'd go from one state to another walking the entire night. Then, we'd have to survey the area, pay our informers, and bribe the politicians and the police. Our decisions on whom to kidnap, which villages and homes to raid, were not haphazardly made. We had excellent intelligence. I miss most the power and authority. When people betray me now, if I were still a decoy, I could have taught them a proper lesson. About a year after her release, she was invited to participate in a conference about alcohol prohibition and female pornography in India. And it was after this conference that Fulon began her political career. Running for parliament was especially important for her because when she won, she would be granted parliamentary immunity and allow for all of the crimes that had been brought against her to be forever dropped with no chance of anyone deciding in the future to pursue her for her crimes at a later date. She found politics to be very interesting, saying, quote, Politics is so astonishing. I'm getting so many offers from different parties, but what can I do? If I accept one of them, then the others won't court me anymore. And I've got to be friendly with all the parties at the moment and antagonize none of them, because all of the court cases pending against me in Uttar Pradesh. I actually had dinner with the government with the governor of Uttar Pradesh last night, he flew me to the state capital secretly in a military plane. In the end, Par Fulon served as a parliamentary member during the 1996 to 1998 terms. She lost her seat in the 1998 election, but was re-elected in 1999. One of her lawyers is quoted as saying that one of the most extraordinary things about Fulon was, quote, her endless boundless ways of reinventing herself. I don't think her past can ever be absolutely corroborated now. So many of her close associates are dead, killed in sticky encounters. Her family changes sto its story every day as she does. So much of her past has been deliberately obscured. Throughout her election, she would definitely play on the melodrama and romance that gathered around her in her myth. She would sweep into prisons unannounced, demanding to see old friends. She would commandeer trains at unscheduled stops and set rallies there. 
before being elected despite having all the criminal charges still against her and being on parole. In September, she left India, traveling on her new passport for a one-month tour of Europe to promote her new biography that was recently released. Sunel Sethi, who was a columnist and critic who began writing about Fulan at the time of her surrender, says that, quote, Fulan's two greatest gifts are rabid cunning and fatal charm, an irresistible combination and a great achievement in a woman who is so brutal. It would have been impossible for Fulan to be anything but an Indian, and she is tailor-made for the Indian imagination. Since ancient times, we have had an inordinate capacity to make a myth out of any story, and to demythicize the most epic into the most mundane. Fulan is a do-it-yourself goddess who can rapidly demonize. Fulan served as a parliamentary member during the 1996 to 1998 election terms. She lost her seat in the 1998 election, but was re-elected in 1999. During her terms, she was heavily for abolishing the caste system and gaining more rights for those in the lower castes. A majority of her voting base was based off of those people who were considered to be in the lower caste system and made up about 85% of the entire voting pool. She was able to call them to the polls and get them to vote for different things that she wanted to pass in the parliament. Unfortunately, her time in parliament did not last very long. On July 26, 2001, Fulon Devi was assassinated by three masked gunmen outside of her home. She was shot nine times in the head, chest, shoulder, and right arm. Her personal security guard was also shot in his right chest and right arm, and when he returned to fire, the gunmen fled. Fulon was immediately rushed to the hospital, but declared dead on arrival. Now, police were accused of purposefully mishandling evidence, hiding weapons that the killers had dropped, and allegedly not investigating the three other people staying in Fulan's house who had known about the weapons. These weapons, revolvers, disappeared from police custody before any evidence or forensics could be taken from them. In the end, there were 11 total accused of being involved, but 10 were acquitted due to lack of evidence. The main accused was Sher Singh Rana, who admitted to murdering Fulan to gain revenge for the men that she'd murdered in Bemai. He was convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison on August 14th, 2014. And that is part two of Fulan Devi's story, India's Queen of Bandits. Now, I personally feel like Fulan Devi definitely had so much happen in her life. It's incredible that there isn't more out about her and there isn't more people who talk about her but I know that so I was really happy to be able to do not one but two episodes covering her and her life story. I would love to know what you guys think of these episodes. Feel free to let me know if you have any more information on Fulan, if there was anything that I missed or any other information I should have covered. Feel free to reach out to me at frumiusreads, F-R-U-M-I-O-U-S-R-E-A-D-S. You can also check out the podcast homepage at frumiusreads.com forward slash a dash murderous dash affair for transcripts of the episodes and just to keep up to date on anything that's happening behind the scenes. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, basically anywhere that you can listen to podcasts, A Murderous Affair is there. Thank you guys so much for listening. Stay spooky, friends, and I'll talk to you next week. Goodbye.